Hello, Mead friends. Welcome to Mead Mirth. I'm your host, Brando Tice, and today we sit down with the founder of Golden Coast Mead, Frank Goldbeck, for part two of his journey through life in the mead industry. Frank is currently the president, parade leader, chief mead theorist, and compliance officer for Golden Coast Mead. He's also a BJCP certified mead judge who just loves to taste some really good mead. In this episode, we talk about some of his learning experiences, achievements, and his favorite brews he's had the pleasure of making at Golden Coast Mead in the past 11 years. Thank you for listening. Now, please enjoy the second half of Frank's journey in the mead world. So we left off with you cleaning tanks at a farm to make your farmhouse funk. And did you guys get a location after that? It was farmhouse batch. Farmhouse batch. Okay. Yes. Yes. Farmhouse batch. Number eight. Um, and then we got a location. Yeah. After working at a barn with dirt floors, no lights and no running water. Um, and then listening to Tony Robbins and imagining a building where there was lights and water and uh, drains and concrete floors and then boxes of goods would come in one end and finished mead would go out the other uh, we were able to put together a location and uh, found it in Oceanside and we've been there for eight years now ah. that's awesome yeah. so yeah. sounds like you went through some challenges those first couple of years do you want to talk about any like growth spurts you guys had to go through as a company that stick out in your mind yeah, there are definitely some learning curves. And, you know, I think any journey worth doing has a lot of learning uh, included in it. Um, and I think the most critical piece was learning how to ferment mead consistently well, which um, we've been at the forefront of for a while um, with the advent of nutrient additions to fermentation and aeration and temp control when we started the industry did not have the understanding of the nutrient needs um in a mead and the overall nitrogen deficiency that is present in a honey water mix which is really bad for fermentation yeast fermentation yeast need nitrogen um to have a healthy fermentation and avoid producing off flavors and then oxygen is another key component to a healthy fermentation and no one was really talking about how to aerate and oxygenate your meads. So people would do things like over pitch yeast significantly, which we experimented with. And uh, that had various drawbacks. Um, we would ferment in tanks that didn't have complete uh, temp control. So that was a lot of learning as well. But once we got nutrient addition, aeration and temp control dialed in our production became a lot more consistent and our quality became a lot more consistent um so we uh have have definitely taken that journey and then that's an I'd interesting say, point so like can you tell me more about like maybe like a batch that went wrong when you pitched the yeast incorrectly and like what'd you learn from that yeah so we had a batch that where the yeast um, was outside of its temperature range, it we weren't using any nutrients, uh, either rehydration nutrients or broad spectrum fermentation nutrients, and we weren't doing staggered nutrient additions. So 
the result was yeast that like grew up deformed and then produced a ton of sulfur in the product and it was such a departure from our prior batches that we had to ultimately get it distilled um, to, to make anything of value out of it. So that was a, a major lesson learned. So what brought you to like, we did this, but we're going to now say stagger pitching a nutrient. Like, yeah. What was that learning process like? Like, oh, we just put it all in here and that batch went really bad and sulfury we're going to try to stagger it and just ended up working or did you have to do research on that? Yeah. So we, um, we were working with triple B ranches at the time and they had just gone to a trade show and um, they were able to consult with a fermentation uh, expert from a yeast manufacturer who put us on to rehydration nutrient and broad spectrum nutrient but we didn't have any idea about staggered nutrient and oxygenation uh, during that process. So it was, it was a few steps on the curve, you know, from not using nutrient at first to using nutrient, but not doing it in a staggered way or with any aeration. Um, and then we just tried over pitching and that resulted in really yeasty needs to then, um, introducing rehydration nutrient and staggered nutrient addition, which we learned from um, Ken Tram and uh, Sergio, Sergio Mutella at um, Melovino. Melovino, okay. Yeah, Melovino. And, and we were on the message boards a lot. The uh, Got Me in message board was a, was a key piece to our learning and growing. Uh, I like to tell the founder, Vicky Rowe, that if Cotton Mead didn't exist, Golden Coast Mead wouldn't exist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we, um, yeah, we took it from there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So pitching and like adding nutrients and how you add nutrients and aerating was a huge learning curve. Were there any other learning curves that stuck out in those first couple of years? I'd say we're still um, learning a lot. Uh, specifically, honey is incredibly fascinating. There's so much to know and learn about honey and the way that it changes season to season and place to place. So wildflower honey is this catch-all term for any kind of honey where the bees are just gathering nectar from all the flowers that are blooming in a given period of time. And then they're kind of blending it within the hive. Uh, and the, the honey is being extracted with no eye towards a particular varietal of honey. It's just the, the honey that's coming out of the hives at that time that it's harvested. So wildflower honey can vary significantly from the same set of hives season to season, year to year, based off what's blooming in the area that the bees are visiting. So getting a consistent core honey to make into a consistent core line of products has been a challenge that we've only recently overcome in working with a beekeeper that really pick, uh, keeps a very large scale of bees and then um, produces organic honey from Brazil. And then we're even blending within their honey supply so that we get a consistent supply of core honey 
to make our core meads from. Oh, wow. Okay. So during the first couple of years, you would try to get the same honeys to brew batches and you would like get completely different flavor profiles and it all just came down to different variations of what the bees were collecting. Right. So when when we had our first batches of sour that we made consistently, the honey changed. And so even though we were doing the same process, the flavor profile of the mead went from this bright, light, semi-sweet, golden flavor profile to this more dark, caramely, malty flavor profile. Because the honey that we used, even though it came from the same supplier, um, it came from a different enough floral source, blend of floral sources, that the honey changed in flavor and therefore the mead changed in flavor. And being able to go up to the producers and taste the honey by the barrel before you buy is not something that most beekeepers are really tooled to do, uh, especially at the scale that we're purchasing from them on. We all, yeah. So finding a key honey partner is going to be able to supply consistent quality honey. A blend it has been really a big step for us. That makes sense. That's interesting that it's just hard to get the samples of honey from suppliers because are they just used to like people buying it without tasting it? Yes. In in the traditional honey market, which is not the mead honey market, it's um, graded by color. So the bee, the, the, bakeries and other manufacturers are just kind of shooting for a consistent color of honey. Whereas we want a consistent aroma and flavor profile, which means that we need to have consistent floral source behind that honey. Gotcha. So most of the industry is just basing it off of how it looks. And so it's hard to kind of combat that and get a consistent aroma from it. And I believe in order to call a honey a varietal honey, like an orange blossom honey, the standard is only that it has to be 51% that kind of honey. So it oh, could wow. be a, a blend of all different kinds of honey as long as 51% of it is the varietal that you're calling it. So that could change significantly year to year. Yeah, so you could be buying the same varietal, but 49% is just completely different. Exactly. Which would have a huge indication on like flavor profiles. And aromas, yeah. Gotcha. So when did you first like learn of like this happening and like what was your journey like to finding our current honey supplies? Man, it's been a long journey and um, it happened... We found our current honey supplier because we were at Expo West, the big food trade show in Anaheim, and we were pouring mead, and these young, bright-eyed folks walked up, and they are like, oh, mead, mead is cool. You know, we do honey. And then talked to them about our mead and poured them some of our mead, and they said, this is really cool. Uh, you know, we make organic honey. I said, oh, that's really cool. Do you make it locally? And they said, no, it only comes from Brazil, really. There's some from India and some from a few other countries, but significant quantities are made in Brazil, and that's kind of it. So 
we were we were interested in that, but we wanted to source local um, California honey. So we we stuck with our California local sources, but then we kept running into this problem of consistency and how we would buy the same quantities of honey from the same suppliers and the meads would and use the same production process and the mead would turn out totally different. So we wanted to address that because we wanted to have some brand consistency and our customers to be able to expect that a certain flavor profile would exist when a mead was made a certain way. And it just didn't turn out like that, like over and over again. <laughs> so we, we ultimately called these guys back and we're like, hey, we've been trying this local thing and we're running into these kinds of problems. And they're like, hey, we have a very consistent supply of these organic honeys and we know that they're consistent because we've started a brand focusing on the flavor profile of these honeys. So if you work with us, we'll be able to get you organic honey and consistent flavor profile. And so we did a couple tests and found it to be really, um, really good, but different. So we, we came up with a different brand. And then since then, we've been sticking with that. That makes sense. So are there any like recommendations you would give like new meteries or people who are trying to brew at home? Like how, how could they go about finding a consistent honey source? That's a great question. Um, so the first thing is testing different honeys and recipes, processes, so that you get the style and um, flavor profile that you like and taking gotcha. good notes as you do that. Uh, and then taking good notes on the flavor profile of the honey before you ferment with it. And some people like to take a certain amount of honey, like take a tablespoon and then dissolve it in like five or six ounces of warm water. And then gotcha. taste that because that's going to be a more representative experience of the flavor profile of the mead after fermentation, um, the flavor profile of the honey after fermentation into a mead. Whereas uh, other people like to just taste the honey and then pay attention to the aromas and flavors that are there minus the sweetness. So imagine tasting a honey and, and just paying attention to what aromas or flavors are there while imagining the sweetness being gone because that's what's going to be left over after the sweetness is converted into alcohol in the fermentation process. So take good notes on the flavors and aromas of your honey, then make your meads when they turn out well. Now you know what kind of honey you're looking for as you try to scale up your recipe. And we're working on cooler, more scientific approaches, which include... Uh, fingerprinting the honey with various testing processes so whether it's gcms gas chromatograph mass spectrometry or nuclear magnetic resonance imaging um we've got a, a couple pro projects in the works through mead institute to hopefully share that technology with folks so that they know what the fingerprint of their honey is when they make a good batch and then they'll be able to find that honey again and reproduce that batch easier. Oh, wow. That's super cool. Yeah. Sounds like you guys have come a long way when it comes to, like, the Meat Institute being able to fingerprint stuff like that. Or is it still a big challenge? Yeah, it's, it's still a big challenge. Um, we're working with Dr. Corey Amal at Eastern Michigan University. 
to develop the protocols and the standards. So we're hoping that that'll happen by this summer, but we've run into a few snags. So just keeping, keeping them, uh, it on the front burner and, and chipping away at it as we can. That makes sense. All right. So we got honey is very important and where we source honey from and nutrient addition and aeration. We're big learning cursory. Was there anything else that stuck out for you? You know, I think on a business um, perspective, like who our customer is and why they drink mead and what they expect from it um, is something that we've learned a lot about when we started. Um, we were competing with craft beer at craft beer prices, but that's just not sustainable because honey is naturally three times more expensive than the sugars that go into beer. So we needed to really understand what made honey special and communicate that with our customers and then charge a price that was sustainable for our business and helped our customers uh, convey how special that product is. So when we learned a lot about honey and learned that it takes the bees visiting 2 million flowers to make the honey for one pound, uh, for a one pound container, right? That's just mm-hmm. incredible. And then we use a half a pound of honey in one of our bottles. That means that there's a million flower visits in one bottle of our mead. And if there's a hundred sips in a bottle, that's 10,000 flower visits per sip. That's so amazing. Yeah, it's so cool. Right. And, and, um, when we started to convey that to folks and charge a price that reflected that quality and that value, um, then people started, I think, to really understand and share that story and the beauty of that story with the people they shared the mead with. And then the experience became much richer and more enjoyable and more beautiful in a way, right? Like how much would it cost to experience a million flowers? It's like, well, yeah. here's a bottle. <laughs> bottle, 10 million flowers in one city. Yeah, well, 1 million flowers and 10,000 flowers in one sit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There we go. If you had 10 bottles, then that would be 10 million flowers. <laughs> sounds like a fun night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So did you guys just feel like at first you were going down the path of like whatever like beer breweries were doing that's what we should be doing and you just slowly kind of switched to like it sounds like you kind of went to more of like an expensive wine uh customer base to like more of like uh like a beer industry type of customer base i think we're somewhere in between the two i think um you know, when we started craft beer, San Diego, kind of synonymous. And, um, but we were doing something different, right? We were doing something delicate and floral, um, citrus blossom notes, semi-sweet, something that you would sit down and share a bottle between a number of people. And then we were selling those for 20 bucks a piece. Um, and, <laughs> Some of them were incredible uh, and, and definitely underpriced. And then we um, wanted to offer something that was easier for folks to pick up and finish in one sitting uh, by themselves. So we switched to a smaller package and an ale yeast fermentation. And that 
flavor profile was definitely more approachable. Um, but we were retailing those for 12 bucks each and we were wholesaling them. You know, when you do a wholesale alcohol, um, business model, you're getting like half of the dollars that the customer is paying. So 12 bucks on the shelf meant six bucks to us. So we were really just turning over, um, product and, and not making much money. So then we switched to our direct to consumer business with a focus on our tasting room. And that picked up a, a bit and we achieved profitability for um, the first time in the company's history. And as we continued to do that, um, we found that people liked the premium you know, super premium price point and quality. So we've, we've kind of doubled down on that and continue to focus on it and, and continue to see um, really good re- reception in the market. That's awesome. So what do you credit to becoming like profitable? Cause I know that's a big step for a business and you guys achieved that. So like, what was it? getting the metery up and running and getting it directly to the customer you feel like, or was it just a combination of a lot of different things? No, the profitability happened when we focused on the tasting room and we focused on telling the story of the product and then turning, you know, new customers into regulars who were comfortable with that price point and that story and excited about it. I think finding a, a profitable product, a market that is ready to pay for it, and then expanding that effort. That makes sense. All right. So just finding the right customer base and the right product and the right type of honey and the right way to brew it, and you should be good to go. (laughs) Right? That's it. Yeah. All right. Easy Easy work. That makes sense. All right. So how about some like achievements that you're super proud of while working at Golden Coast in the past 10 oh, years? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we've had, we've had a few. Um, the medals that we won, the awards, the gold medal for the Spice Sour, the gold medal for the Wildflower Sour. Um, those those have been two uh, achievements. through those products. Yeah. So our wildflower sour is um, organic wildflower honey from Brazil. And we make um, meat out of it by fermenting it with lactobacillus and ale yeast and that special process that we came up with um, slash was divine intervention. Um, Tell me more about this divine intervention. We were looking for that product market fit and the sour when we when we uh when we were experimenting with with different things a guy showed up making jun which is like uh kombucha but made from honey and green tea instead of sugar and black tea and then it has a different culture which is uh suited for honey fermentation and it's a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast and so we um did some relatively large like 80 gallon experiments in the meadery with that culture while also brewing our ale yeast needs. And um, 
the conventional wisdom is that that is unwise because there's a good risk of uh, SCOBY's symbiotic cultures of bacteria and yeast jumping their containers and going into other containers and unintentionally souring um, other products. So that happened. And uh, <laughs> a 300 gallon batch um, started to go sour and we were like, Oh no. And then we tasted it and we were like, Oh yeah, this is good. <laughs> so it was just our wildflower base and um, we, we packaged it up and sold it as a sour because um, uh, technically it's a vinification process. It's just a fermentation with a, a bacteria culture, not any kind of additions of any flavors or anything. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have to get additional formula approval. Um, and we were able to just go ahead and uh, sell it and people loved it. It was a like mm. semi-sweet, tart, honey, um, bubbly, really a lively drink. So that was something, something sour was our first sour that we made and sold. And it was with California wildflower honey. And um, what year was that? That was 2014. Oh, wow. That's kind of parallel to when like sours took off with beer, right? Totally. Totally. We were uh, drinking a fair amount of Flanders Reds and Gozes and Berliner Weisses. And we were like, this is cool. What if we could do something like this? And then it happened. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that wasn't the divine intervention piece. The divine intervention piece is that we're trying to make it consistently because our distributor has picked it up and people are loving it. And uh, we have a distributor in New York who just wants sour meat. And we have a business partners in New York in charge of sales on the East coast. And he's like, people want sour meat. Just give me more sour meat. And we're like, well, when we try to make it, it's extremely variable as in sometimes it's tart and crisp and beautiful. And sometimes it's funky and uh, horse blankety barnyard. <laughs> and um, which is characteristic of a lactobacillus fermentation instead of a um, Brettanomyces fermentation, right? Respectively. Gotcha. So we figured that there is, you know, in the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast that we're just um, repitching we've got this shift that's going on microbiologically, but we can't pin it down, even though we're doing like dozens and dozens of trials. And so I get off the phone with my business partner one morning. He's out in New York and he's saying, dude, if we could get more sour meat, I could sell all of it and it would solve our financial problems. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to make it. And he's like, Okay, well, can you figure it out? And I'm like, we're trying. And he's like, try harder. (laughs) And so I hang up with him, and I'm in the driveway at my home, about to head to the meadery. And I, like, put my head on the steering wheel. And then I look up, and I'm like, mead gods, please make it abundantly clear how to make sour mead. And I just kind of let that question drop and drive to work with all the care in the world. And when I show up at work, there on our doorstep at the meadery is a PhD in yeast science who oh. is, yeah, he was like standing on our doorstep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, direct answer to prayer. <laughs> it's delivered. 
And so I he just showed up randomly. Like he was there. He was literally there when I got to work. Like I, yeah. So I was. We struck up a conversation. Um, he wanted to sell me some of his products, and I was like, "Cool, thanks." Actually, what we really need help with is figuring out how to make this consistently, like this tart and refreshing. You know, give him some of the sour meat and have him taste it instead of this. Which and I pour him the funky, um, you know, barnyard sour. Mm-hmm. Uh, which surprisingly enough, we went on to call Galley Grog, and there are a lot of people who really liked it. Um, but <laughs> we didn't like it quite as much, so we kind of discontinued that one. But maybe one day we'll bring it back. Anyways, so he is like, "Oh yeah, I think I know what this is. Uh, let me uh, go make a culture and uh, see what we can do about it." And sure enough, comes back a couple weeks later, and he's like, "All right, I think I got the culture," and we fermented with it and it turned out amazing and voila we've had our sour culture ever since oh wow yeah so it was literally just someone showing up at your doorstep and he was able to replicate it i mean it was a lot of things uh you know (laughs) being able being able to ask the question i think was a big part of it which came from doing all those trials which came from um chris hare doing a lot of work on our R&D. Um, he's moved on to Lost Cause where he's a brewer over there and he's doing a great job. So it was a lot of things. Um, and I would add that one of the things that I'm really proud about is that that, that recipe, that style of mead that we came up with, um, got recognized by the U.S. Honey Board oh, as wow. one of the top uh, 20 alcohol is made from honey over the last 20 years oh wow it's pretty cool yeah. yeah that's exciting yeah i think we were number 13 out of 20 or something oh, wow. so, so is that where you got the gold medal from or is that a different competition? oh yeah so so then the gold medals we then um added some spices to that recipe and submitted it to the san diego international beer fest and won gold for that one Oh, wow. Which is really cool. And then we submitted um, just our wildflower sour, which is the wildflower from Brazil, the organic, uh, arguably regenerative honey from Brazil that we use, then fermented with the the sour process. And um, that was at the International Wine Market Awards, where they judge not only the quality of the beverage but also the price point and the packaging so that retailers and distributors and other folks in the trade can get a sense that like okay this product looks and tastes and is priced to sell and gold medal there so that was cool wow now when you say your the brazil meat is regenerative can you dive into that a little bit more yeah so regenerative honey is this thing that we've been chasing for a a long time um about five years now and it's this argument that honey is unique amongst the sugars that alcohol is made from because you don't need to tear up nature to make it you just need bees on top of nectar producing ecosystems to produce honey so if we're trying to build a food system that doesn't compete with nature, doesn't reduce biodiversity, doesn't degrade soil health, right? We're trying to build a food system that increases biodiversity, that 
increases soil health so that carbon sequestration can happen, water sequestration can happen, groundwater recharge can happen, all these critical things that make our ecological functions um, sustainable and therefore support human and other life on earth, right? We, we need to shift our food system away from the mechanized, um, destructive and extractive models that we inherited with World War II, where we spray a ton of chemicals, whether that's pesticides and herbicides or um, chemical fertilizers, and then ultimately reduce a ecosystem's capacity to grow plants and support life going forward by doing these practices. Right? The, the food system that we've inherited and practice is fundamentally unsustainable and extractive so regenerative is the opposite end of that scale by doing regenerative things we're increasing the system's capacity to support life so how does that apply to honey well right now most honey is produced by beekeepers who provide pollination services to monoculture agriculture so monoculture agriculture is when you just have huge fields of one crop and then the farmers are spraying herbicides to kill anything that's competing with those plants and spraying pesticides to kill any pests that are trying to predate those plants and then um, spray a bunch of fertilizer to increase the productivity of those monocultures but over the long term the soil food web which is this wild thing that we're only beginning to understand now where you have all these mushrooms and uh, mycorrhizal funguses that live on the roots of the trees they get burnt out by these um fertilizers and herbicides and fungicides and other um, chemicals that are sprayed. So the plants can't take up the nutrients from the soil and the soil falls apart. The, the mycorrhizal funguses are actually exuding all of these um, compounds that stick the soil together. So when they get when they die because they've been burnt out by these um, different chemicals that are sprayed on the fields, the soil then falls apart and blows away in the wind. and You get desertification and loss of topsoil, which means that you can't grow plants anymore. So it's a huge systemic problem. And the majority of the honey that's in the market is one watered down with corn syrup or um, rice syrup or other um, fraudulent additives. Uh, and then two, the majority of the honey in the market comes from these monoculture crops. So we realized that we were buying this honey and turning it into a really value-added product, but it was adding to a food system that isn't doing our future or the future for our kids or, you know, the beautiful abundant world that we envision and, and talk about at Golden Coast Mead any favors. This honey was just the byproduct of this extractive monoculture food system. So we... Um, got in touch with Bee Seasonal Honey, who is sourcing honey from Brazil, where beekeepers are in the forest and they have hives on the forest and they're generating, you know, value creating products out of an ecosystem. Hives would get cut down and turned into timber and then cattle farms, basically, right? That's the huge trend in Brazil is take some beautiful ancient forest, cut it down sell the wood for timber and then put organic beef or non-organic beef on the pasture that you then plant on that place that was formerly a forest. 
And so, so by buying honey from these operations, there's someone economically incentivized to preserve that forest and continue to produce a valuable product from that forest that is continuing to produce those ecosystem services. That makes so, sense. Now, how does that play in with like um, consistency of honey product? Because if bees are is collecting out of a forest, how are the beekeepers like making sure? Oh, they're only gathering nectar from these flowers. Yeah, great question. So we basically source three kinds of honey that have a certain amount of tolerance within them and when those tolerances are then blended with each other we're getting a consistent supply of source honey for our mead does that make sense yeah so when you talk about tolerances can you go more in depth about that yeah so they there are these regions where the honey is from the bee seasonal provider is talking about the varietal characteristics of these regional honeys and then they are blending to achieve those varietal characteristics consistently within a certain tolerance right so it's not the uh one year it's bright and tart and uh floral and then the next year it's totally different roasty malty caramely right that would be like totally swinging across the spectrum so they're going to say okay this regional honey we're going to blend it to be this flavor profile of tart and floral and um, relatively sweet, right? Whereas this region is going to be more on the like robust, um, a little bit of spiciness and a little bit of maltiness. And those blends are always going to have those characteristics consistently. Gotcha. So they take the honey that they get and they try to create blends that match specific flavor profiles from what they are given from the bees. Exactly. And then we take three of those and blend them together to further flatten out the variability. Gotcha. Okay. That's super cool. So you feel like the honey that Golden Coast gets from Brazil is helping with the regenerative process and it's not taking away from any ecosystem it's not extractive and it sets an example of what we want to put our honey money towards which is food systems that don't compete with nature but instead add to nature's capacity to support life so as we grow we're going to be buying more honey we're going to be buying it from beekeepers that are working with landowners who aren't cutting down forests but instead are potentially planning more biodiverse nectar-producing ecosystems, right? When the regenerative uh, mead business model really takes hold, it's driving customers' alcohol dollars towards beekeepers and landowners who are planting more ecosystems that increase biodiversity, increase soil health, and produce more nectar. That makes sense. That's super cool. Yeah. And how did you how did you come to the regenerative approach? Did that kind of just randomly come about, or is it something that you thought a lot about and you like proactively wanted to do and find? Yeah, that's that's a bit of a story, and um, 
happy to tell it. It's, uh, it started when we started the company. We wanted to be part of the regenerative food system. This word, you know, when I was in college, I studied internationalism a multidisciplinary major about economics and political science and India and food sovereignty. And, you know, um, I was also in the military. So going abroad and seeing how uh, the world runs on cheap oil and the United States foots a huge bill to keep the oil flowing through the world. And we see that now with the conflict with Russia and Ukraine. Um, that oil is a huge leverage point for our world economy and politics. And I thought, you know, what can I do to change any of that? Um, Really as an individual, not that much, but if I go home and I start a business that is trying to do the right thing at home, can we start a a trend or a, a movement that aggregates to a much bigger change? So it's kind of been a part of our vision and mission from the beginning, but it's taken root in that regenerative honey mead ecosystem because honey is at the root of what we do at Golden Coast Mead. If we can source honey that is good, then we're going to be able to make that impact on a small scale and inspire other people to make that impact and hopefully expand that way. And then ultimately inspire the customer that their dollars really matter. Where they put their dollars creates a system that is either extractive or regenerative. So this, this started with permaculture, which is an effort to establish a permanent agriculture. If we look at the history of agriculture, um, in the words of uh, Toby Hemingway, who is a pretty famous permaculture designer who recently passed away, um, He said, you know, if you want to take over a place, send in the army. If you want to destroy a place, send in the farmers. Because the history of uh, large-scale agriculture is soil degradation and ultimately the collapse of civilizations. You look at the um, cradles of civilization where farming first started, and you see places that have just been basically turned into deserts, whether that's North Africa and Carthage, or the Lust Plateau in uh, the Chinese um, Lust River Valley, where which was one of their cradles of civilization. Like farmers have destroyed soil and then degraded the capacity to grow food and have ecosystem services that provide clean air, clean water, and healthy food. And then people have had to leave. So the civilization that it was based on collapsed. So um, Bill Molson is this architect or was this architect who I believe was trained in Australia and then ended up in Tasmania and was trying to run a farm in Tasmania and realizing he was importing all of these um, resources, whether that was fuel for his machines or fertilizers for his crops. And then he was exporting all of the things that he grew there. So ultimately the ecological system was going to be turned to a zero sum, right? You're, You're bringing in all this stuff so all your money is going out to then grow things that you then send away. So the financial capital and the ecological capital is being extracted from this farm that he's running in Tasmania. And he says, how can we redesign this? As an architect, he thinks in systems and he thinks in um, the way that 
system loops need to feed into each other. Otherwise, you have waste streams and then you have um, extraction and destruction. So he starts to imagine how one system's waste becomes the input for another value-creating activity. And ultimately, this is called function stacking in permaculture. And so this way of thinking got me to look at what we were doing at Golden Coast Mead and to see how honey that we were buying from monoculture agriculture was not building the world that I wanted to live in and share with my friends and family um, or customers for that matter. So what could we do? And then we also had the consistency problems and um, found this partner that was offering a solution to all of our problems and ultimately a model that we hope to extend around the world and have had a little bit of success doing um, to the tune of like 18 meters that we've helped start including one in Africa, one in Europe and um, consulted with a few in, in Jamaica and other parts of the world as well. Yeah. That's so awesome. So we got your two sours winning awards. We got progress on your vision for a more regenerative world. Are there any, anything else that you feel like really proud of that Golden Coast has accomplished? Oh man, there's one thing that's in the works that's been in the works for like six years and it's getting really close, but um, still a little, little too early to talk about, but maybe we can talk about it um, in the not too distant future. Yeah, for sure. We'll leave that for a future episode. <laughs> yeah. All right. So wrapping things up, are there any like mead brews that like you just really loved or you stuck out for uh, you over the past 10 years? Thanks. Yeah, right now, I mean, Wildflower Sour is my go-to, my, my number one. It is our regenerative organic Brazilian wildflower honey with our sour culture fermentation that's unique to us and it's unlike any other meat in the world. And it really leaves you with a great light, bright feeling. There's no preservatives in it and uh, it's 12% alcohol and less than 1% residual sugar. So it's a very mirth inducing feeling, uh, drinking and sharing that mead with other folks. Uh, and then we have this sweet coffee mead, that uh a really cool guy helped us develop that is really just lighting people up when i share it with them um it's flavorful and rich and beautiful i mean people that try it just go oh my gosh this is so good so really excited about that one and then over the course of history we have made an orange blossom um sour that when it turns out well is transcendent. Um, but it is sourced from monoculture oranges and I'm just not excited about that anymore. So we're trying to source a regenerative organic orange blossom honey so that we can get back to making the orange blossom sour. What were the main differences between like the orange blossom sour and the wildflower sour we have now? Yeah, so the orange blossom sour was made from just orange blossom honey. And from a flavor profile perspective, the two are very different. The wildflower sour is tart and rich and funky, wild, uh, rainforesty, uh, like white flowers and um, a bit of 
Oh, man. Green apple. And then this just richness that lasts and keeps going. Whereas the sour orange blossom is like jasmine and citrus, um, citrus peel, citrus fruit, like the actual, you know, like a mandarin orange pulp. But then it's got this high pitched tart note that comes across pretty intense at first and then softens out almost immediately into this long semi-sweet finish so one of them is the the wildflower sour is much more rich and aggressive whereas Mm -hmm. the orange blossom sour is more floral and sweet with a little bit of aggressive note to make it interesting. And then it's nice, really um, gentle finish. Gotcha. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Any other brews really stick out to you? Man, over the course of 11 years, um, we've done a lot. And I, we did do a Groot, which was really cool. Uh, so Groot is what people are making. Um, Groot ref- refers to a set of herbs that were used to bitter beer before hops became the, the main um, bittering agent in beer. So, I just think of the little character, Groot. Groot, yeah, totally. <laughs> The, the kind of thing but it actually goes back like to the bronze age which was like five thousand years ago right like the celts were brewing beer with Groot herbs and mead with Groot herbs back before the roman conquest and um all the way up to i believe the 1500s 1600s people were brewing beer with Groot herbs and the catholic church was charging a ton of taxes on them and so the protestants in germany apparently rebelled against the Catholic church by saying, we're only going to brew beer from hops, um, which they had a large capacity to grow. And that's part of the political economic history of alcohol, which is pretty fascinating. Um, Yeah. So Groot herbs, we've made different um, combinations of Groot herb meads including like Meadowsweet and um, Mugwort and other herbs that turn into these. Lemon balm was a Groot herb that we used. Um, Yarrow is one that people use, though there's a question about Thujone content that you've got to be careful about because Thujone can be present in Yarrow. And if it's past a certain threshold, then the FDA is not happy with you. Um so getting that pinned down would be really cool to do in the future. Um, but we're going to hopefully work on some historical recipes to get people a sense for what mead used to be like, but in our kind of modern Golden Coast style. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Is there anything else you want to talk about when it comes to bringing us to present day Golden Coast mead? I think... One of the things that I love most about Golden Coast Mead and the opportunity to share mead with the world is all of these things, the ecological impact that mead can have, the history that mead 
ties us to and then the human creativity that it takes to create good mead and share the stories and craft of mead it all adds up to this synergy that is greater than the sum of its parts and i just like to call it magic you know like the magic of mead is all of these things rolled into a single glass that you can just hold in front of someone and say here try something awesome and then when they do when it hits it just lights them up and then you can tell them stories about how the sunlight is collected by the plants and turned into nectar by the plants and then the nectar is collected by the bees and turned into honey and the beekeepers collect the honey and then we take that honey and we turn it into mead using microbes and this like transubstantiation of sugar into alcohol and all of these things together connect that human who's drinking that mead with all of the universe <laughs> that's so crazy and it's been and connecting awesome. yeah and it's been connecting people that way for at least 9,000 years we have recorded or, uh, archaeological evidence of humans drinking mead in 7,000 BC China. And then there are anthropologists who conjecture that it was like 10 to 20,000 years ago and maybe longer that we've been finding honey that fermented and drinking it and experiencing altered states of consciousness. And in that altered state of consciousness, you can compare your altered state with your normal state. If you only know your normal state, then it's just normal. But when you have a state to contrast that normal state with, you begin to appreciate what consciousness is and you became, become self-aware. So all of this is wrapped up in a glass of mead and sharing it with the world is a joy. That sounds awesome. Glad we can be a part of sharing joy with the world. Amen, brother. Thanks for making it happen. And uh, yeah, I look forward to more to come. Big shout out to Frank for sitting down with us and sharing his journey. It was awesome to hear the history behind Golden Coast Mead and how it came to be. Thanks for tuning in and have a beautiful rest of your day. Meet out. Hello, Mead friends. Welcome to Mead Mirth. I'm your host, Brando Tice, and today's conversation will be with Frank Goldbeck, our chief mead theorist, and Brandon Uhl, our head brewer, covering advanced mead theory concepts. We talk about the relationship between honey and different yeast strains and how they interact with each other, starting gravity, final gravity, and the pH of a brew, and finally, the balancing act between sweetness, acidity, and alcohol. This episode is part one of our conversation where we discuss different concepts. Part two will be us talking through a recipe creation using the concepts discussed in this episode. Now, please enjoy our conversation on meat theory. Big thanks to Frank and Brandon for sitting down with us to discuss meat theory today. Tune in next week to hear us develop a new recipe using the key concepts we discussed today. Also, should I start doing a bee pun at the end of these for you guys? I don't know. Bee puns aren't all that great. I don't get what all the buzz is about. Meet out. A big thanks to Frank and Brandon for sitting down with us today to discuss meat theory. 
Tune in next week to hear us develop a new recipe using the key concepts we discussed today. Also, should I start doing a bee pun at the end of these for you guys? I don't know. Bee puns aren't all that great. I don't get what all the buzz is about. Meet out.